For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with ecologist and author Brad Lancaster about the Sonoran Desert's most precious resource. Captain Ahab's quest for the great white whale arrives in Tucson. I'll talk with the director and the star of the Rogue Theater's new stage production of Moby Dick. And the first installment of a new series from contributing producer Laura Markowitz, looking at the journeys that some youth must take in search of their gender identity. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In 2006, Tucson resident Brad Lancaster completed a task that would change his life. He wrote two books about rainwater harvesting, and those publications opened doors for Lancaster to explore many parts of our planet and learn along the way. Now, a revised and updated version of rainwater harvesting for drylands and beyond is being released. Brad Lancaster hopes that this will reach a worldwide audience. He spoke with Arizona Spotlight's Tony Paniagua. Brad Lancaster, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You are known in many parts of the world as a person who really pushes rainwater harvesting. What is it specifically and why are you so passionate about this topic? Yeah, so it's uh, making the most of that free water that falls from the sky, the rain. Um, You can typically do it one of two ways. You can collect it in a tank for later use. Uh, That's great, Um, but I actually prefer collecting it in these basin-like shape earthworks in the soil and the living soil and the vegetation Um, that way uh, I can also control flooding I can grow shade food other resources it gets better over time and I've heard you in the past and one of the things that stood out for me among others is that Tucson with the current amount of water that we get typically in a year would be enough to cover our needs for residential water customers. Can you talk about that a bit, please? Yeah. So we're in a place of perceived water scarcity since we're a desert community getting 11 inches of rain a year. But more rain falls on Tucson, the surface area of Tucson, in a typical year of rainfall than all its half million plus inhabitants consume of municipal water in a year. So there's more than we need falling from the sky if we can just use it. So instead of draining it, can we reinvest and infiltrate it? So when did you discover this concept of rainwater harvesting and how did that lead to two different books that are have been recently updated? Yeah. So I, uh, in college, learned how to articulate the problems of our water scarcity. But after college, I took a course in sustainable design, a permaculture course. And uh, this just opened new worlds to me, and it was more solution-focused. And that's when I was introduced to the concept of water harvesting. And uh, just lit up with passion and but I was frustrated because I found that it gave me more questions than answers and uh, I was even asked to teach the water section of the course the following year because I complained there wasn't enough info for me on the water so um, I started to research doing all I could uh, pursuing other practitioners and whatnot reading everything there was 
And I got really frustrated because there was a lot of information, but it was just little pieces here and there. There was no one resource I could go to. So out of that frustration, I created the book I was seeking. Um, and it ended up being a massive book. <laughs> and so I had to break it up into multiple volumes, um, which I'm grateful I did because it makes it inviting and accessible. These books have been your passport to many countries around the world. Can you tell me about that, please? Yeah. So a crazy thing that was not expected at all when I started this is uh, this has become a, a passport for me to travel because I'm now invited all around the world to teach, to present, um, and to share and cross-pollinate with others that are trying to uh, make the water situation better where they live. Uh, so I've had the chance to travel to over 24 countries uh, to teach and to learn. Uh, it's been incredible. And what really blows me away is this has all come from me just doing what I would call conscious shovel work in my own backyard and neighborhood. Uh, and just from learning by doing, learning by living it, uh, that's given me the, the passport to travel and learn more. The early editions of the book have sold over 50,000 copies, uh, and uh, the new editions are meant to take that to far more. Because uh, what I just find is we can all learn from one another, and they spark my continual evolution, and I hope I can help spark it in them too. And one of those ideas you mentioned is planting the rain. What does that mean? So planting the rain is accessible to everyone for the cost of no more than the price of a shovel. So it's basically just changing the surface of your soil so you've got these bowl-like, basin-like shapes where you want to infiltrate or reinvest water and then plant within and around those. Uh, so the idea is to get the water into the soil below the surface of the soil as quickly as possible and then utilize living pumps of vegetation to access and grow that water. What would make you really, really happy, very excited in 10 or 20 years, as far as this topic is concerned? In 10 or 20 years, this would be the default practice. So you could go through any part of town and you would not see water drains anymore. It would be water infiltration strategies everywhere you went. And every street in Tucson would be a would be a shaded street. The walkways, the driveways would all be under the canopy of living shade, irrigated with nothing more than the runoff of adjoining hardscape streets, roofs, or so on. So we could be thriving on what's readily at hand uh, and at the expense of no one else. And if we don't take action, what do you think will ultimately happen? 20, 30, 4 years down the road? Uh, if we don't take action, we're, we're going to be in trouble because uh, the projections are with climate change, we're going to have longer, hotter droughts. Um, temperatures are going to be increasing. It's not going to be a comfortable place. Um, but if we do make these changes, Tucson could actually be more comfortable in the future than it is now at no energy cost. Okay, Brad Lancaster, water harvesting activist and author, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Brad Lancaster will hold a free interactive presentation and book signing on Wednesday, January 15th, starting at 6.30 p.m. at XO Roast on 6th Avenue, north of downtown Tucson. You can find more information on the website, azpm.org. And as climate change and increased demand impact the supply of the Colorado River, how is Arizona preparing for a future with less water? 
Tune in Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. for the next episode of The Buzz and a closer look at the future of the Colorado River. Or you can look for the story at azpm.org. Speak, thou vast and venerable head. Speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers, thou hast dived the deepest. Thou hast moved amid this world's foundations, where unrecorded names and navies rust and untold hopes and anchors wrought. There was thy most familiar home. Thou hast slept by many a sailor's side where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Oh, had thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham. And not one syllable is thine. With its robust poetic language and timeless story of obsession, Herman Melville's 1851 epic Moby Dick is a literary masterpiece. I think it's the kind of book that people either quickly give up on or they fall under its strange spell. A brand new stage adaptation of the novel is opening this weekend at the Rogue Theater, bringing the voyage of the Pequod and its steely captain to life on stage. Joining me now is Moby Dick director Cynthia Meyer and Joseph McGrath, who portrays Captain Ahab. Together, Meyer and McGrath founded the Rogue Theater, which is now in its 15th season. Oh, I think the beauty of Melville's words is tremendous, and it thrills us in much the same way that Shakespeare does. Um, You know that Lear or Macbeth are going to end up in a bad way. (laughs) Uh, We know that about Ahab, too. But there's something thrilling about the way Melville writes the story and the language he uses. And I think it allows us to reflect on our own mortality in a way that's that's very deep and very profound. Joe, what was it like for you to put on Ahab's long coat? How did it feel to step into this role? The obsessiveness of the role is well known, and, and that, that really is that drive for vengeance. It really is the core of the man. But I was really surprised as we got further and further into the rehearsal process how deeply philosophical and self-aware he is. Um, He knows the problem that he has. And before the last lowering, before that third day, he does not have a good feeling about how this is going to end up. Um, He's a more self-aware man than, than he is in our popular imagination. He really is, is very aware of what it is to be human and frail. 
Where do you think that this story comes down in the classic philosophical argument about predestination and our own ability to control our destiny? It's interesting. Uh, last night, I counted how many times the word fate is used in the novel. It's, um, it's used 23 times. And one of the things that we're exploring in the adaptation is, is that very question. How, how does fate or predestination play into Ahab's story? The thing that I've come to realize is that fate is not written in stone, at least not, I think, in, in this book. But it's something that is flexible as the story progresses. I think Ahab has many opportunities to alter his predestination and could create a different ending uh, to the novel. And he chooses again and again and again not to take the alternative path. I would agree that what's predestined is in Ahab's determination. Uh, I'll chase him round good hope. I'll chase him round the Norway maelstrom, and I will chase him round perdition's flames before I give him up. Um, and there is an argument, actually, a confrontation between Ahab and Starbuck, where Starbuck says, you don't have to do this. And Ahab says, this act's immutable was rehearsed by thee and me a billion years before this ocean rolled. So, uh, you know, that's yeah, predestination on steroids. <laughs> right, right. A billion years. Yep, yep. For people who don't know the history and the origin of the rogue theater, it's kind of a Cinderella story. Two people who loved theater who made a theater. It really is a dream come true. Every now and again, Joe and I look at each other and say, wow, how did this happen? How did we deserve this? How was this possible? And, you know, our hearts are just full of gratitude for all the people that have made this possible. Uh, one thing that's worked well for me and Cindy is when we're in rehearsal, we have each other's back. Uh, <laughs> so it's very hard to mutiny against the two of us. One of us might 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 not hold up, but the two of us, you, you just can't do it. Okay, well, let's talk about what I think was probably the first thing that came up when you decided to do this production. How are you going to bring a ship, an ocean, and a giant cetacean to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people have said to us, but how are you going to do the whale? <laughs> or um, where's all the water going to come from? What we really depend on is the audience's imagination. And we do that in every play we do, even if it is a, a realistic set. We still depend on uh, your imagination, on the audience's imagination. When you read Moby Dick, it's all happening in your head anyway. It still is what you bring to it, and so uh, we're depending on that, and we're looking forward to what people bring when they come to see the play. I have to remember every once in a while to the cast that 
this whale is longer than this entire room because we've got a 50 foot by 80 foot room. The whale's actually 85 or 90 feet long. And sometimes the actor's eyes just kind of open up wide. And we remind ourselves that this is crazy. Going out in a boat and chasing a, a, a monster that's 90 feet long uh, in the middle of the ocean. Tell us about a way that the family that you've built at The Rogue and your repertory company, how is that going to be felt by the audience in this production? What new angle of teamwork did you discover in putting Moby Dick together? We were just talking on the way over here about there's a, a moment, it's the first or second day that they go after the, the white whale, that two of our actors in the ensemble have just developed into this gorgeous moment of fear and camaraderie and I had, as the director, I had nothing to do with it. They they developed that moment, and, and that's happening throughout the, the whole play. Um, we've got 10 members of our ensemble throughout the production. There's 17 people in the show, but 10 of them are our ensemble members, and they're just permeating the larger ensemble with such um, energy and creativity and involvement. It's been really tremendous in this production. Uh, Last question, Joe. If you were to find yourself in a tavern somewhere, sitting across the table from Ahab, and the two of you were enjoying a brew, would you have any advice? (laughs) Let it go. I do deem it a most meaning thing that that old Greek Prometheus, who made men, they say, should have been a blacksmith and animated them with fire. For what's made in fire must properly belong to fire. And so hell is probable. Performances of Moby Dick begin Thursday, January 9th at 7.30 p.m. and continue weekly from Thursdays to Sundays through January 26th. The Rogue Theater is located in the historic Y at 300 East University Boulevard in Tucson. And now the first in a five-part Arizona Spotlight series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people who are finding their gender identities. Laura Markowitz will talk to teens, parents, and experts who are on the forefront of understanding the full spectrum of human identity. Against a backdrop of Supreme Court battles over bathrooms and school board fights about whether to teach gender identity in schools, it's easy for parents of transgender children to feel unprepared to help their kids navigate the world safely. But they can find support from a local parent community that is helping hundreds of Southern Arizona families face the challenges of raising trans and gender non-binary kids. Here is Laura Markowitz with the story. Tucson's Pride Celebration is one of the oldest in the nation. When it started back in 1976, the focus was on sexual orientation. But today, people with a rainbow variety of gender identities also participate, as well as their friends, allies, and family members. My name is Lisette Trujillo, and I facilitate the family support group for the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. Trujillo is the mother of a transgender son, I call it my plot twist. Like I was pregnant and I was told that I was going to have a girl. 
If you ask him what the worst day in his life was, because I did ask him this, um, he said it was his third birthday and I threw a princess party. She and her husband, Jose Trujillo, noticed that from an early age, their child identified as a boy. I remember him putting on my clothes, wearing my ties, and then deepening his voice. And if you look at the pictures, there's a disconnect. What we now know is gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is something that transgender people across the board experience. It's defined as a persistent feeling of distress and discomfort because the bodies they were born into don't match their inner gender identities. When he was eight, his little friend called him him. And the mother corrected my son's friend and said, no, sweetie, she's a girl. And his friend looked at us like we were crazy and said, no, he is a him. So I walked my child back to the car and I, and I told him, um, I heard your friend refer to you as him. Is this how you see yourself? And he told me, I know that my body is wrong. But in my insides and in my heart, I'm a boy. I was so afraid of what that meant. Like even my husband and I would have these conversations and he was like, don't. Don't mention it. <laughs> well, what, what, what I was afraid of is what if we caused this? I needed to really get educated. Because one thing is to not be against it, which I wasn't. And another thing is to understand it and explore it. They looked for help and found the family support group at the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. It's a parent community that was started by four mothers who wanted to find resources for their transgender kids and to find support for themselves. And over the last 10 years, we've significantly grown. So we're about 189 parents. We have stock letters to go to the school. We have doctors that support and affirm our children. We have therapists that are trans competent. And they'll tell you what sport programs are safe, what schools are safe, what schools aren't. Finding those resources and finding those safe pockets is vital. There's also a lot of conversation about coming out. When is it safe? When is it not safe? We slowly came out to family, and it wasn't necessarily positive. My mom is here now, four years later, um, but we did have some losses. And because we didn't find parent community until about nine months later, we really didn't know what we were up against. I didn't know what laws protected us. Um, I didn't know if people were going to try to take away our child because we were loving and affirming. That happens in some states. A lot of the parent communities will say you have to compile a safe folder, and safe folders are like folders where you put like doctor's notes, pictures, drawings, things that prove that you're having this gender experience. I was afraid. Luckily in the state of Arizona, we're a little bit more protected. Trujillo says the most important thing for parents of transgender youth is to figure out how to keep their children safe in public spaces. You don't have to disclose to everyone that you're trans. You disclose as you feel it's safe to. Before, even I was guilty of it. I was like this walking wound that was like, I have a transgender child, don't harm me. And like outing him everywhere and realizing that's really not safe and actually no one can tell. A couple comes over to find out about the parent support group. Hi. Hi, welcome. Obviously you have a trans child. They, yes. they came out last year? The end of July. Okay. And as a parent, I totally knew something was going on. Right. And just that inner gut feeling of something's not right, and I was just giving him the space at that time just to figure it out. And lots of affirmations and lots of, you know, no matter what, you are going to be loved and supported in this family. Whatever you tell me, 
It's not going to change anything. And how have you been feeling, like, this last year? I think, like, there was initial relief to know, okay, this is what it's been. Uh, and then there was, like, that sinking feeling my gut. Of fear. Yeah, of, oh, my God, this is what it is, and knowing the kind of world we live in, how at risk that puts him. And, you know, as a parent, what you can do to keep them safe. All the parents that I speak to, the first thing that they will say is, I was afraid. It wasn't that I was afraid that my kid was trans. It was I was deeply afraid that the world was unsafe for my trans child. Yes. And there's a deep feeling of aloneness because parent communities are hidden, but there's thousands of us. And so I just want you to know that we're going to help you and your family. I don't want That's you to good. feel alone. Our whole focus has been helping him get what he needed to get started on his journey. Yeah. Because like for us, it was brand new news and we were adjusting, but for him, He'd been on this journey for years and years yeah. and years. They say that yeah. before children come out, like especially in that teen range or that tween, they're researching two to three years before they tell a parent. And so by the time they come out, they're actually asking for help. She says for parents to really be resources for their kids, there's a transition that they have to go through because you don't really understand the experience. So a lot of what happens between the child and the parent is reaction. What parents' communities do is we offer the information needed so that you can better empathize with your child and do all the grieving or any of those things that you may feel like in parent community where it's safe. The journey for parents of transgender kids may seem like uncharted territory, but Lisette and Jose Trujillo say it's really not that different from what every parent goes through. All parents have some expectations for their children, whether conscious or unconscious. And at some point, children become their own people and they choose their own paths. Like a line of politicians in the family, you know, or doctors, and then all of a sudden the kid wants to be an artist, right? And it's like, what? You're going to be poor. So you're going to be poor. It's like, how are you going to feed yourself? Instead right? of embracing it and being like, okay, let's figure this thing out. Let's, you know. let's give you a paintbrush and oil. Let's, let's help you thrive. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Tune in next week for episode two of Youth Crossing Gender Borders. No parent ever comes in saying, I expected my child to be transgender. I wanted a child with gender dysphoria. All that parents want is their kid to be loved and to be safe and to be accepted. When a preschooler insisted that he was a she, everyone in the family had to adjust their ideas about what gender truly means. Changing expectations, next week on Arizona Spotlight. The music for this series was written and performed by Noah James. For photos and more information about the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.